this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning writer and illustrator of novels for children and adults. She's sold over 2 million books in the UK. Her work's been translated into more than 22 languages. After struggling with undiagnosed dyslexia as a child, she went on to study at a top London art school and work in costume and set design for the theatre. She's now a critically acclaimed author whose accolades include the Guardian Book Prize and the Carnegie Medal. Her latest work is The Weather Woman, an historical novel which touches on modern themes such as gender fluidity and the climate crisis. Sally Gardner, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. Now, Sally, I'm going to start by telling a story and I'd be very interested to see if your memory of this event (laughs) uh, matches with mine. So back in 2015, both Sally and I were guests at the Guadalajara Book Fair in Mexico and I think we were both there with the British Council and we had to fly back with Joanne Harris on a plane that stopped in Atlanta and the British Council said to me, make sure you look after Joanne and Sally because nobody from the council can be with you, you're in charge, Georgina, and just keep an eye on them. Well, we had a stopover in Atlanta, at which point Sally said, there's a fantastic apple shop here, let's go. And I was very mindful of my duty to the British Council. I said, absolutely not, we're not to go. Joanne Harris said, I'm not going anywhere. Sally, however, was determined. And so we dumped our luggage on a slightly grumpy Joanne Harris and off we went shopping. We both bought new computers at the apple shop and then Sally discovered a department store. And my goodness, she tried on everything there as I got more and more anxious, thinking we would never get back in time for our play and the British Council would never speak to me again. I had lost one of their best assets, this wonderful, wonderful author. However, she did fantastic shopping. She chose all this brilliant stuff and we got back, met up with Joanne and got on the plane and got back to London and nobody at the British Council was any the wiser. Sally, do you remember that? Do you know, I remember, I was so determined to get that computer. I was just so determined. And we did it. I, I was, I remember being on the train with you and the, the sort of worry thinking, oh my God. And actually I did have a moment of panic thinking, uh-oh, I think I may have misjudged. Oh, and <laughs> do you know what? I've suddenly remembered another bit. You left your bag behind and had to go back for it. I did, I, I did, I did have to do that. It was tight. And Joanna Harris, living. Don't know if she talked much to us on the plane. I think she was furious. But we we had a great time. And there is another bit with Joanna Harris, which I do find very funny, because I love seeing a place. We were only there for three days, weren't we? We were there for a remarkably short amount of time. And so I said to her, well, I've hired a taxi to take us. She said, well, I'm not going on a taxi. I'm getting a bus. So I said, well, I, you know, you can, but personally, I don't think you're going to see very much except a lot of people on a bus. Anyway, the long short of it, two three of us went off in this. It was like herding cats. Joanna Harris went on a huge shopping spree and me and this other writer sort of stood there going, oh, and then we got to lunchtime and uh, Joanna Harris said, I want to have chicken in chocolate. And the driver, who was a wonderful man, and he said, yes, perfect. It is a dish of the country. And he took us to this, what looked like a sort of rundown cafe. And poor O'Jara Harris was expecting something much grander. And he said, no, no, this is the best place for chicken and chocolate. And that's what we had. And it was, and it was the best place. But it was just, you know, a wonderful sort of moment of chocolate. (laughs) 
Excellent, excellent. It was such an extraordinary trip. I went off with a couple of writers too, and we ended up uh, having a lot of whatever the local spirit was at lunchtime in some artist's studio. It was just a, quite an enchanted time. Anyway, let's talk about you and this latest book, The Weather Woman, which I absolutely love. Before we get on to the specifics of the book, which I think address so many of the themes that are very relevant today, I want to just take us back to being born within the smell of the Cadbury's factory, Birmingham. Yes, I, I was born there. And actually, funny enough, every time I do an interview with um, a Radio Birmingham, who I do love, they say to me, I, I'm a daughter of Birmingham, which I rather like. I remember it vaguely from my childhood with my grandpa and granny, but it's only vague. But my most of my childhood was spent between, my parents got divorced, and it was spent between uh, Gray's Inn and Hammersmith. And um, it was an interesting and... Uh, I really hated my childhood, if I'm truthfully honest with you. I, I, one of the reasons that when people say, you know, we might come back again, I think, oh, no, never. and never want to be a child again. <laughs> Once was traumatic enough. And that was because of your, at that point, undiagnosed dyslexia. Well, it didn't help. I mean, I at seven, I realised I was in a lot of trouble. And it's sort of funny, I, I, I always describe it like it starts off as a stream of a difference between you and your mates, and then suddenly you realize it's a river and you're right on the other side and they're way ahead of you and you don't have a boat and you don't know how to join them and you're really, really stuck. And you're being, people began saying things, well, she was a forcep delivery. Yes. <sighs> and so there was a whole um, raft of problems I was given and dyslexia wasn't one of them. And it wasn't until I was 11 that I went to saw the most terrifying woman and she diagnosed it as word blind. And she was called Maisie Holt and she absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. And she had a room with hundreds and hundreds of clocks. And I always loved it if I went there and it was just reaching nine o'clock because all the clocks would ring. <laughs> and for 10 minutes, she couldn't teach me. It was just bliss. <laughs> um, and then she, I was cured. She said, she called it word blind, so she didn't, you know, so Sally is cured, she's perfectly cured, she's absolutely fine. Of course, I couldn't, I could hardly spell my name, which I couldn't spell, actually. So it was a fair disaster. Mm. And then you were sent to a school for maladjusted children. I was indeed. I was sent to this school, which is was called Horncastle. And it's actually on a list, I'm afraid to say, of uh, schools where really rather bad things happened. And it was an extraordinary place. And... I don't know if I can tell you one story about it, but it's, I find this quite a fascinating story and very it's a very distressing one. A young girl came who obviously had cerebral palsy. My parents, I remember, they both wore hats and coats and reminded me of the um, Philip Larkin poem, you know, uh, soppy and hats and coats, half the time the stern and half one another's throats. And they left this girl, she was in a wheelchair, and Dr Bullen ran this school. And Dr. Bullen decided, we all looked at this girl and we almost screamed, don't leave your child here. And Dr. Bullen wheeled this little girl out and it was raining and we all had to stand in a row. It was a very sort of old, beautiful house in Sussex. And we all stood in a row and she tipped the girl onto the gravel. And she said, no one is going inside. 
until this girl walks. Oh. We looked at the little girl and we just thought, oh God, she's never going to walk. And I remember we were all so wet. I remember my knickers were wet with the rain. That's how soaked we were. And we were out there for two hours. And in the end, we all held hands and we all said, walk, just walk, please walk. And she crawled on the gravel to the wheelchair and Dr. Bullen took it away and we all shouted, no, no, put that back. And she did. And the girl got up and we all said, walk, just walk. And she did. Oh. It wasn't amazing, but she never used a wheelchair again. But how brutal. It was utterly brutal. And that was the school. It's a fairly traumatic thing. Mm. Anyway, the girl walked. <laughs> and you yeah. learnt to read. Well, I never had any lessons. I think that's really was the miracle of it. Dr. Bullen didn't believe in dyslexia. She told me that. And I was left alone. And I, I had a head full of stories. I got out of my childhood by telling myself endless stories. And they were really, they're really gripping. I would sort of want to get back to them. My mother always said, you know, you will get through this glass wall, which was reading. And I loved books, absolutely adored them. I used to love the smell of them, the feel of them everything about a book so I couldn't make the pesky words stay still and one day in this school a boy was having I have to be a bit careful about this because he, he was actually having an epileptic fit and it was fairly grim and I just couldn't bear it it was bubbling with rain the noise was intense children were crying and screaming and I found and it sounds very callous of me but I found this book on the floor and it it was the Brontes, all their collection. And I had tried at one school to read Wuthering Heights and I'd been expelled and it was used as a reason for expelling me because I thought it was about a doll's toy box with a doll knocking on the window. And my, you know, I hadn't got it right at all. Mm. And uh, I remember reading this and suddenly I wasn't in this room. I was on the moor, it was snowing and, you know, we were with Heathcliff. And I just, I got through it. And after that, you couldn't get me out of a book. You just couldn't get me out of one. And you did, you got your O-levels and you went off to, to get a degree from Central St. Martins. You then went into theatre design. Tell us about that period of your life. Well, I got a first class honours degree, which I'm incredibly proud of. And then I won a huge scholarship from the Arts Council. And I went to Newcastle. And I was a designer up there and I did two shows and one show really sort of made me. And that was Good Woman of Sets One. And I did it with 1,500 car tires. No one had used car tires before. And um, they were all remolds. And I made this whole city from them. And it was it was pretty phenomenal. And it had Janet Sussman in it and Jonathan Kent. It was a star cast really. And uh, that went to London. Uh, it couldn't be used with the uh, tyres because they're fire hazard. Ugh. But um, I think what that time in theatre taught me was story, the way to tell a story. I mean, there's nothing more sobering for a writer to see an audience fall asleep. You know, after the interval, they sort of drop off. Mm -hmm. After the interval, time to bring out a gun and shoot, you know, <laughs> shoot your character. Because that wakes everyone up. What the hell? But, you know, that that is... It was such a good thing to see when story died. 
And it didn't matter if you were the best actor in the world, if the story wasn't good enough, you have lost your audience. You moved from the technical side of drawing up plans for sets to costumes and, as evidenced by your shopping trip in Mexico, clearly have amazing taste. Uh, But tell us about the costume side. Well, again, my dyslexia rather did me down because although I did these incredible sets, they always would say, where's the man who designed this? I get the measurements right. And my dyslexia made people burst out laughing at me. I get 16 or 61 foot, you know, I got things. And what no one told me was it would have been easy to find someone to draw up ground plans, but it wasn't so easy to find someone with my ideas. Mm. And I, I sort of thought, well, maybe I should stick with costume because maybe that is easier and it doesn't involve so many ground plans. And I always sort of thought of a bit like, washing up in a funny kind of way. You know, it's the kind of thing that you get left with everyone. If they can't get to the director or the set designer, they can always get to the costume designer. And <laughs> <laughs> make your life very, very troublesome. Yes, so but I did that for a long time. And I then did, uh, my last show was at the National Theatre. And I did it, it was when Peter Hall and Alan Aikbourne, and I was doing, Alan Aikbourne was the director of, we were doing Dispity Shoes of War. And the sort of two giants decided to have a war. It was like watching two sort of dinosaurs go at one another. And Alan Aikbourne put the costume count from sort of like, I think it was 30 up to nearly, I don't know, it was nearly, it was massive. It was massive. And I just had a baby. And I remember going to him and saying, no, I would like a bit more money for having to do all these more costumes. And he said, no, you do it for the art. And I said, art for art's sake, but money for God's sake. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, if you make a fuss about this, you're not going to work again. And I actually thought, do you know, I think I've come to the end of it, really. I think I've genuinely come to the end of this. And I spent, oh, my word, I went out to town. You know, if someone showed me a cheap velvet, it'd be like, no, no, no. Where's the more expensive one? Anyway. I ended, you know, like the Vikings, send your boats out in flames. I went out in flames and I was told, you know, I'd blown the budget. I'd done this, I'd done that. And I I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'll never work. They'll never employ me again. And I remember two years later going back to see the people in the wardrobe department thinking, you know, they'd throw custard pies at me. And I went in, they went, Sammy. And I went, oh, yeah. And I went, oh my God, how much money you're Costumes are made. We've rented them out to nearly every amateur dramatic society. And of course, because they're made from such fabulous fabrics, we've been able to dry clean them. It doesn't matter what happens to them. They come up as good as new. Oh, it was so good. That was very funny. <laughs> How did you then transition into writing? Well, um, I never really like to talk about this, but uh, my ex-husband left me. and uh, That's why he's ex. And he went to America and he didn't come back. And that that's fine. You know, we now are all very amicable. But at the time, it was fairly grim. And I had three little people. And I had a wolf that came and sat on my garden fence. And the wolf uh, said he could blow my house down. And the wolf was a bailiff. And I think me and the bailiff have forever uh, more been trying to beat each other <laughs> and save the house from being blown down 
but he um it was fairly serious and i remember my editor my agent at the time said um you know well you you have been writing and you've been writing for ages and you've got to just show us it and i said well it's all spelt very badly he said well we'll find someone who can make it spelt right so you stop it and i went and saw this incredible woman i i tell the story about which is I put all the notebooks of the first thing. It was called The Strongest Girl in the World. And I put them all in a carrier bag with a hole. And I had this thing that if the hole uh, went before I got to Soho, then I was never meant to be a writer. And I just have to find another job. And I remember this woman seeing me and seeing the notebooks nearly falling out. And she scooped them up in her scarf and said, no, 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 no. And that book was published with only one sentence being changed which was phenomenal. I mean, up to that point, I'd, I'd written sort of little things, but I hadn't done anything big. And I remember my wonderful editor said to me, I knew you could write, but we didn't know you could write. I love that. Wonderful. Um, and of course, you illustrated those early books too. Yes, I did. I did indeed. And that the illustrations... I work with my daughter now on several books, but my illustrations took much longer than the writing. Yes. And yep. I mean, so prolific. I mean, so, so many books you've done for children. And then we come to your adult writing. And this book, The Weather Woman, is in your own name. But your first two books for adults, you wrote as Ray Delaney. Why was that? Well, I, I you know, I don't know, honestly, what was going on with me. But I wanted to do something sexy. And the first book, I really wanted to do something about a woman who thoroughly enjoyed being in bed. And so often it's it's either done with them being villains or um, not in a joyous way. And I just thought it'd be fun to try and write that kind of story. But then I didn't want anyone picking it up at eight. It would not be suitable. And then The Beauty of the Wolf, which I have to say I love as a book. I really did love as a book, but it, it didn't do well. And it, it didn't do well, I think, mainly because people think it's something to do with Beauty and the Beast. Right. And it is a take on it, but it isn't a Disney take. I don't do Disney. And I think a lot of people are like, you know. Anyway, there we go. Well, The Weather Woman, as I keep saying, is, is a wonderful book. It starts during that great frost in 1789. And again, we come back to this idea of women having and enjoying sex, which I think is just wonderful. The whole book is really about the suppression of women and how women can take control and, in fact, do. It, it, it starts with this wonderful child who's got this extraordinary gift. She can, she can read the weather. The one line that stands out for me, the weather is fundamental to our survival. It is the root of our planet. And so she, there she is in 19th century London, seeing how human activity, but the fires, the pollution, is affecting our world. Very early on for that. It's about women, really, who are, who are ahead of their time. Yes, she is ahead of her time. And the thing about the sky at that time, which is very interesting, I mean... It was not to be looked at. It was the realm of God, the realm of heavens. And you might, by looking up at it, see something you shouldn't. And so people wore clothes for every season in one day because they wouldn't look up at the skies. I mean, the farmers did a little bit of predicting, you know, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. And people by this time were beginning to think, well, actually, maybe we should be thinking about the weather. 
but it was very much in its infancy. Yeah, it fascinates me. And of course, the other great theme, this, this idea of gender fluidity, very, very interesting. I mean, that the, the main character at one point has false genitalia, which she, she straps on to make her walk like a man. But this is not trans as we know it. This is an identity that can be taken on or off. You know, the trans, I mean, one doesn't want to get into trouble here. I really wanted to talk just about the fluidity of sexuality. And I do believe that in a lifetime we are many people and not necessarily all fixed in the sex that we are in. And I wanted, you know, the thing about Neva is she needed to become a man to be able to be in the man's world. There's no way as a woman she could have gone to lectures. She could have gone to scientific meetings. She would have been allowed into Brooks. I mean, at that time, to walk down a Pall Mall as a respectable woman was almost as good as throwing your reputation in a bin just by walking down the street. So the chances of her learning anything were nil. And so in a way, by her becoming Eugene Jonas, it gives her a freedom. The only problem is that women begin to fall in love with her and she doesn't love women. It's a very subtle, I hope I've done it subtly. And Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I find it completely works. And even I felt, felt myself a little in love with Jonas. It also made me weep for our ancestors, for all of these lost opportunities. When you realise that you put it so starkly, all the things that women couldn't possibly do and how times have changed. Well, they have, and you know, all the. I was so interested about the Regency novels because really, they all all the moment is marriage. That is all it is. Is this you know one glorious moment of marriage, of making a good marriage, and that's it. That end of story. And actually, I thought, no, 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 no. The French Revolution has just happened. This cannot be the end of story. It is such a tragedy that what would you do if you were a clever woman in those times? I think I'd have gone insane. Mm, mm. You also explore class differences. And there's a, I mean, there's a particularly sadistic aristocrat, but also just how, how talent or, or uh, novelty can break through. Yes, you, you're talking about Mr. Ratchet, yes. who is the, who is, yes. Uh, and well, even Neva herself, having, uh, being part of this weather woman show, suddenly she's accepted in the great houses, even if she is there as the entertainer. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I mean, you can break through. I mean, the thing that, that what really is interesting about the Regency period is gambling. Put it on the table. It was the biggest class movement of that, that system. So, for instance, Pitt... Uh, who was prime minister, gambled. He, he owed at one point 250,000, which is millions in those days, and he was still prime minister. I mean, the Conservatives have never stopped gambling in my, mm. in my, in my estimate, but gambling was so much in the, the blood of that, that fortunes were lost and given. And there's a very interesting story about a young man called Hill, and he worked in the gambling dens, which are really grim places. And then he suddenly, he was very successful. And then he suddenly saw the new opportunity, which was horse racing. And he built a whole empire, which we still have today, called William Hill. Extraordinary. That comes from this period. I do find that. That's a wonderful success story. Mm. And there were lots of other. There were, 
lots of people who lost in the entirety of their estates. I mean, not just a part of it, but all of it on one roll of the dice. Mm, my great-grandfather, in fact, was one of those and lost some stately pile uh, <laughs> through gambling. And I think it affected very, very many families. There are all sorts of wonderful sort of things that we do see in, in Regency novels. Lost letters, shipwrecks, mistaken identities, all those wonderful kind of pillars of great storytelling. Was that intentional to sort of echo those those tropes, if you like. Well, funny enough, you know, I didn't think about it until it was written and then people said, you've echoed. And I'm like, oh, I have. But, it's, you know, story will run itself. If you've got it on a roll and you've got the wheels on the car, it tends to sort of go and you find yourself going with it. And th there was no way I could, because there's a big gap at the point. I wanted this story to go from one prospect to another prospect with a lot of time. And the letter was vital for that. I couldn't think how else to sort of manoeuvre this in that way. And yes, so I suppose, yes, looking at it, there are lots of tropes that I have used unconsciously at the time, I mm. would say, not consciously. And of course, those frost fairs, as you say, it begins and it ends with a frost fair. And this is something we in modern day London are completely unfamiliar with. But at the time, it was something that, that was huge. Well, I went on a, a ferry boat just to see, because a, a frost fair, let's put it down, a frost fair had to go from London Bridge to Blackfriars to be considered a frost fair, you know, so for the Thames to be frozen, had to be frozen from London Bridge to Blackfriars. Now, the first frost fair, there was no Blackfriars Bridge. So in 1789, and the first frost fair, and it was a mini ice age all over Europe, and the Thames froze all the way down to the bottom. But the thing about ice is it, it freezes from the bottom up and it thaws from the bottom up. Hence, that's why I'm afraid there are terrible accidents when people think it's solid and it's not, it's gone. Mm. And it is a magical, I mean, I did a lot, lot of research on it. And funnily enough, I, I'm very lucky to have a friend of mine called Adam Mars-Jones and he read The Weather Woman for me. And he said to me, Sally, you can't do it. The whole book falls at the beginning because of what you do with the inn. And I said, Adam, that is the only accurate historical <laughs> accurate. He went, what? And uh, so I put it, I put the actual thing in the book so people can see that it was. And this book, I have to say, there's only 50 copies of it, right, that I found this information in, in the wonderful London Library. I, thank you. I mean, you know, it was a piece of gold dust to discover that, really. I think the whole book is gold dust. It's an absolutely thrilling read. I mean, I read the whole thing in, in two sittings. Uh, wonderful story. Can I say happy endings? <laughs> because I think people like to know that in advance. Uh, and just beautifully written. Sally, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. The Weather Woman by Sally Gardner is published by Apollo and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>